1: Let's give Brother Sergeant a hand clap. We wanted to come preach, teach, whatever you want to do, sing. Amen. Well, somebody say praise the Lord. Amen. You may be seated for just a moment. So good to see everyone back here at Living Hope. Good to be back here. You know, I was reminiscing today when Pastor brought me to the property that the last time I was here, my wife was with me and I uh, took a scoop of dirt and moved it out of one of the foundation uh, tracks that they had laid here before the building was born. So I always like to say I have a hand in this building. So that was supposed to be a joke. So uh, what, a, uh, what a beautiful edifice that you have labored to see come to fruition what a blessing this is, and uh, so, so awesome to see. What a, what a treat to be with you again to see Brother and Sister Johnson. Good to see you guys. I called you Brother and Sister Johnson. That's like official. Uh, these are tremendous leaders of this generation. I love what God is doing with them, and uh, glad they're here. It's good to see Sister Maddie, a fellow classmate of my daughter Ashton. You made it, girl. You survived four years. Awesome. Amen. And uh, good to see you. Others that uh, are here that maybe we know. I get I get to call them names I'm in trouble. But uh, love and appreciate your pastor and his wife very, very much. A dear, dear friend, we probably talk. You're blessed. You're blessed. That's okay. Give honor to where honor's due. I don't think sometimes we realize how blessed we are when we have the caliber of men and women that you have in your leadership, and uh, you're blessed. I love the state and family. Now, I'm a big, big fan of preacher's kids. I just am. And so Brooke, Cameron, Riley, even Dakota, um, I love them, so very proud of them. I give them a bad time, and I tell each of them that they're my favorite Staten girl. Try to do it when the others aren't listening, but I've been caught a few times. Um, You honor, can I just say this? You honor your pastor and especially his wife when you honor their children. I uh, I love Preacher's Kids because I have three of them, and I know the blessings that come with ministry that a lot of people look at and think, oh, yeah, they just have it made. You, you don't really have a clue what they have to deal with at times in that role, and it seems like at times we put them under a microscope, and uh, they're... They're good kids. And uh, I'm just going to leave that there. I just felt to say that. I'm very, very proud of all four of them. And I'm very, very nervous for my friend, Brother Staten, when they all start getting married. Um, You're going to have to come out and preach for me like every other week so we can at least pay for the weddings or something. We'll figure it out. Brother David McGovern, who was with us for seven and a half years in Escondido, has four girls as well, and I remind him often that he probably needs to start selling blood or something because uh, he's in for a world of hurt, but um, amen. I feel the presence of the Lord here tonight, and I'm uh, I'm taking my time for just a moment to make sure I have the vein of the Spirit because I really felt today in prayer as I Went back to the hotel after spending some time with your pastor. I knelt down and begin to pray and just seek God once again. I felt something when He asked me a few weeks ago, and just wanted to make sure that God was still in this. Sometimes, as preachers, we get to thinking, um, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I have the right one. And maybe I need to, you know, we don't." I, I, I get, I'm fifty. Well, I shouldn't have said that. I'm thirty nine in Holden. Um, I'm fifty one years of old of age, and I just. I got one hand, I'm extremely handsome, and I just don't care anymore. Okay, I don't care what people think. I just, the extreme handsome part was was a lie, but I had to throw it in there, okay? Amen. But I'm going to believe that God's going to talk to us tonight. Anybody want to hear a word from the Lord tonight? Yeah, what a beautiful atmosphere. Why don't you stand with me as we read the word? We're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. After that, we'll be going to 2 Kings 13, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1. Thank you, my dear friend, Brother Staten. We, we probably talk two or three times a week, I think, sometimes it seems like. And our prayers have been with them. as was late. We love them. And I'm ready for them to come out to Southern California. I'll probably invite them sometime in January when it's freezing cold here and I'm sitting at the beach. That's a good time to invite my friends from these cold regions. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only. But unto all them also that love his appearing. Second Kings 13, a few verses of scripture here, beginning in verse 14. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died, and Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him, wept over his face, and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he t- Took unto him bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon the upon it, and Elisha put his hand upon the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The Lord, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in effect till thou hast consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows, and he took them, and he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And Elisha died and they buried him. The bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. With the help of the Lord for the next few moments, I want to preach to you on this subject, the tragedy Of unused potential, the tragedy of unused potential. Could we clap our hands to the Lord one more time? Praise God. Praise God. God. Is this S and for Sergeant? Okay. Is it used by Satan? It's new. It's not used by you. There's no corona. Praise God. Is God good or what? Praise God. Praise God. You may be seated. The Lord bless you. If you know me at all, you know that I am a firm believer that each of us were born with incredible potential from the moment that we were brought into this world. I have been fortunate to be given a gift in the way that I was born. My Many look at it. As a disability or a disadvantage, but I truly see it as a gift and by far one of the greatest advantages of my life, though it may appear to be a disadvantage to some. I apologize at the beginning of my time tonight for the, using a personal reference with what I'm starting with, but I believe it will bleed into what I have come to articulate over the course of our time together this evening. Over the last 25 plus years of my life, I have had the privilege of speaking to thousands of students, young adults, and adults, young couples about the potential that I am convinced the Bible reveals that we are all born with. In fact, in each camp or conference that I am privileged to preach, I always begin with a message, especially if I've been there for the first time. I have a message that I preach called Nobody is Born Average. I've shared some of that in times past, I believe, with this church, but I usually reserve it for those opportunities when I am speaking to a certain demographic. All of us, if we are not careful, can buy into the lie that we are average and that we don't have much to offer in this life. Whether that stems from the way that we were raised, whether it comes from the failures that we have committed, the lies that we have been told, or the place we find ourselves in life right now, I want to make it very clear at the beginning of our time together tonight, the Bible has an answer to living a life that has meaning, promise, and potential. And somebody say amen. The apostle Paul revealed his divine purpose of existence when he wrote to his young protege Timothy telling him that, Timothy, i poured my life out. I've left nothing on the table. I have given everything I have in this life to living for God and working in the kingdom of God. Paul was revealing a principle and concept about life. You don't go through life haphazardly. You you don't just tiptoe through the tulips. You live life on purpose. You pour it out. You give it everything you've got. You refuse to settle for the status quo. So I ask a question of every one of us at the beginning tonight. Can that be said about you and about I? Are we truly giving everything to life our families, the church, and to God. Paul laid it all out. I refuse to get to the end of my life and have regrets. Hello. Now I'm going to work on us a little bit tonight, so just buckle up. I do not believe anyone is born average, but I do believe that many of us choose to settle to live a life of mediocrity. I think there are more of us than not who are in danger of disappearing into the abyss of the ordinary. And the greatest tragedy, tragedy in this, of course, is that there is nothing really ordinary about us. We may not be convinced of this because of what we've been through, but our souls, deep down, know that it's true, which is why we find ourselves at times tormented uh, when we choose to live lives beneath uh, our capacities and our callings. Uh, again, I apologize For personal reference, uh, but it speaks to what I want to get across to us here tonight. I have heard many times in my life, more times than I care to count, and I can only count the five unless I take my shoes off, uh, that I couldn't do something or there wasn't a way that it would ever work because of the way that I was born. Uh, It could have destroyed me, but to be honest, uh, it lit a fire under me uh, that strives, uh, that makes me strive to this day to be everything. Thing that I can be in God. Nobody is born average. Now, there are two ways that you can deal with the indictment that you are nothing but average. One way is of hearing this is as a statement of essence of who you are as a result of birth, that you're cut from just ordinary average cloth. Your mama was average. Your daddy was average. Your family is average. On and on I could go. The second is subtly but significantly different. The statement, you're nothing but average, can be about character, that you have chosen a path of least resistance, that you have not aspired to the greatness that is within your grasp. You have refused to move toward the promise and potential that your creator placed deep inside of you. Here is the painful reality. We will find ourselves defined by the average if we do not choose to defy the odds. Odds are that you and I will fall at the average. That's why it's called the average. It's where most of us live, if we're honest tonight. To be above average demands a choice. To be above average requires that you defy the odds. To be above average means that you have have a desire within you to go after things that others may just pass by. You have no control over whether you have been endowed with above average talent or intelligence uh, or physical attributes uh, but what you can control is whether you choose to live your life defined uh, and determined by the status quo uh, or rise up uh, even when the law of averages works against you uh, I still believe greater is he uh, that is in you uh, than he that is in the world uh, I don't care what your mama said I don't care what your daddy did uh, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You have to raise the bar in your life. We need to raise the bar of our standards of our faith We need to raise the bar of the standards of our sacrifice, of our expectation of ourselves, uh, of our beliefs belief of the goodness and generosity of God. We can refuse to be average. Uh, We must refuse to be average. Uh, Our world doesn't need an average church. Uh, Families in this community don't need average families. Uh, We don't need average worship services. Uh, We don't need average altar calls. Uh, We don't need average youth ministry. We don't need average sermons that we pull off the internet. We need to rise up and say, you know, we're going to do what God is asking of us to do. We must war against the temptation to settle for less. Can I talk to you tonight? I'm going to slow it down a little bit and just talk to you. Average is always a safe choice, and it's the most dangerous choice that you can ever make. Average protects us from the risk of failure, and it also separates us from the futures of greatness. I cannot stress what I'm about ready to say any stronger. Hear me. Never underestimate how much God intends for your life. Never underestimate how much God wants to do in your life in this church. Never underestimate what he wants to do through you and in you. Never underestimate what he wants to do with your children. Never underestimate what he wants to do with your life. I refuse to get to the end of my life and have regrets. Now, I'm just going to be open with you. I've never found a way around failure. (laughs) I wish I I could say, but I've never found a way around failure. So I cannot teach you how not to fail. But I can guide you to a place where you will never quit. Even here I feel I may need to clarify some things for just a moment. You may be doing things today that you needed to quit yesterday. Hello? There may not be anything worse than winning a battle you should never have fought. I am convinced though, that, every, that every human being has a unique calling in his or her life that each of us was created with intention and with purpose. And I'm equally certain that most of us underestimate how much God actually wants to do in our lives and through our lives. If you will embrace what I am bringing to you tonight, you will journey to the end of your life and not have a single regret when it's all said and done. I'll be very transparent with you tonight. One of the things that frustrates me more as a pastor than anything else Uh, and leading people is simply seeing people that have so much potential and promise but live their lives with no purpose or passion. It drives me absolutely, maybe it's the way that I was born, that I've had to push, uh, that I've had to, I have had to I have press uh, for everything that I've got, uh, amen. I beat your pastor on the golf course because I've worked at it and it's fun to watch him cry, amen. But I'm gonna tell you right now, I, I, I get very, very upset with people that sit down on their pr- purpose, uh, amen. They have no passion, they just kind of exist. Uh, they just kind of there to take up space, honey, you were created for something more. Huh? And it's time to rise up. There is a there's a passage of scripture that we read tonight in 2 Kings 13 that has captivated my attention for a lot of years. It's the story of the prophet Elisha and King Joash. I keep going back to it every time I go back to it. I feel like I see something different. It's happened to me recently. I saw something that I had not Seen before. It's an obscure moment, could easily be missed, yet it is both poetic and profound. It is also, I am convinced, a window into how God works in the world and how we either open ourselves to his bigger future or we ensure that we make the future smaller than he really intends for us to be for it to be. In this story, Jehoash is the king of Israel when the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are divided and at war against one another. His kingdom is being threatened by the armies of Amaziah king of Judah. The one great Advantage that Joash has is that prophet Elisha is with them. But now, Elisha, the Bible says, is suffering from an illness that will eventually lead to his death. Joash goes and weeps over him, less, I think, because of his sorrow for the loss of the prophet and more because of his fear of the loss of Elisha's protection. Joash calls out to Elisha, who has been a symbol and a source of God's strength and power in his life, but now, This prophet is clearly at the end of his life. Elisha then gives him a somewhat unusual series of instructions. Elisha says, get a bow get some arrows. And he does so, and he tells him, take the bow in your hands. When Elisha commands Joash to do this, the king immediately complies. Now, if he had asked me to do that, we would have had some issues. When I do bow and arrow, the bow goes as far as the arrow. I'll let that just sit there for just a moment. When the king raises the bow and the arrow, Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands. Can I stop here for just a moment? Mama, daddy, you better let your preacher put his hands on your hands. you know what? I'm good, preacher. I'll raise my kids the way I want to raise them. I'm good, preacher. I'll do marriage the way that I want to do marriage. Oh, don't get locked up on me all right now. I got one arm, but I'll put a whooping on you faster than you can say. Hello. I know karate and 17 other Chinese words, so I'll put it to you. You better never get to a place in your life where you refuse to let the preacher put his hands upon your hands, especially when it comes to combat. Amen. Praise God, hallelujah! That's good preaching, Brother Sergeant. Yes, it was. Thank you very much. It wasn't even part of my message. It just felt like sharing that. He puts his hands on the king's hands. He says, "Open the east window," and he he does. And the king takes it and takes that bow and arrow, and Elisha says, shoot, and Joash shoots, and he says, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declares, you will completely destroy destroy the the Arminians at Aphek, then he says, take the arrows, and the king takes them, watch this, and Elisha tells him, strike the ground, he strikes it three times and stops. And the scripture tells us something that is quite unexpected. The man of God got mad. He became angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Right after he says this, the story tells us that Elisha dies and is buried. Much of what happens here doesn't make much sense to our modern minds. How could the king's future be so affected by whether he struck an arrow three times or five or six times? Why didn't Elisha explain to the king what was required before holding him to its consequences? How could the king have known that six was the magic number and that three would leave him lacking? Up to that point, he had done everything that Elisha instructed him to do but when Elisha told him to strike the ground with the arrow the prophet left the instruction open ended. It is not insignificant that the text said the man of God was wroth, that he got angry with him. Clearly much more was happening here than meets the eye. This was no small mistake. The king began with the promise of a complete victory, but afterward was the recipient of a whole lot less. And it all centers around one decision. He struck the ground three times times and quit. He put it another way. He stopped. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us why he quit. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he felt ridiculous. Uh, Maybe he thought it was beneath him as a king. Uh, Or perhaps he sensed it was just an act of futility. But it is very clear uh, for Elisha the fact that the king stopped striking the arrow was connected uh, to his determination to receive the full measure of God's intention for him and that nation but he quit and the victory was lost he just didn't want it bad enough hello i wonder how many victories are lost before the battle has even begun in our lives I wonder how much more good God desires to usher into the world through us that has been thwarted by our own lack of ambition. I wonder how many times in my own life I thought I failed, but actually the only thing that happened was that I just quit. Can I preach a little bit here tonight? What is it about us that stops before we're finished, that mistakes quitting for failure, that settles for less. Uh, I see too much of myself in this story. I can identify too many times uh, when I have prayed too little, I've expected too little, and I've done too little. Uh, Have you become the kind of person who is always looking for the least you can do, trying to do only what is required? Or are you the kind of person who has given up not only a life, but also of yourself uh, When you come to the end of your life, will you be able to say, I gave everything I had? Or will you have a hollow feeling inside of your soul that you quit too soon, that you expected too little, that you did not strike the last arrow? I think a lot of us hear God say, take your arrow and shoot. But much like the king, we never hear the command stop striking the ground. We simply stop before we're finished. We stop before God's finished. There is a posture toward life. I don't know why I feel this so strong tonight. There is a posture toward life that separates those who end their lives with their quivers full of untapped potential and unseized opportunities. And those who die with their quivers empty. Arrows are not meant for decor. They are meant for battle. The question each of us must answer is this. Am I the kind of person who strikes three times and stops? Or am I the kind of person who when commanded to strike my arrows keeps striking and striking and striking until there are no more arrows left? Uh, Is it curious that Elisha had the king shoot the first arrow through the window and then instructed him to grab the remaining arrows and begin to strike them? We may never know the full implication of why he had him do it the way that he had him do it. Perhaps the arrow he shot through the window was a symbol of how God would take the victory far beyond the hand of the king. Uh, that's the way an arrow would be expected to be used. Uh, but the odd command uh, in this story was to take the arrow and strike it instead of shooting it. It seems to imply, and I'm, I'm, I'm hastening as fast as I can here. Give me just a few more minutes. It seems to imply that the focus was on what God had placed in the king's hand. This, by the way, is the paradox of how God works in your life and in mine. We must shoot the arrow and recognize that there are things outside of our control, and we must strike the arrow and take responsibility for what is in our control. We are to shoot and we are to strike, but what we are not to do is stop. Most of us live our lives as if the arrows are too valuable to shoot. They look so nice inside the quiver. We may even take extra time each day to organize our arrows and make sure that they are in perfect condition. But what I love about arrows in contrast to other ancient weapons is that while you may use a sword, it never leaves your hand. But the arrow only has value if you release it and it travels where you have not gone your That's what worship does. That's what praise does. That's what prayer does. That's what fasting does. It takes your weapon, and it goes where you have not gone yourself. The arrow extends your range of impact and only fulfills its purpose. When it's set into flight, we are not supposed to die with our quivers full. We are supposed to give God everything we have. My greatest aspiration, Brother Staten, is that I will die with an empty quiver. Amen. Those who never settle have the mindset that they are saving nothing for the next life. Uh, We can become so afraid of death that we never live. So afraid of failure that we never risk. uh, So afraid of pain uh, that we never discover how strong we really are. Uh, I wake up every day with an overwhelming conviction that this life, it really does matter. uh, And that we each get only one life and one life only to make a mark in history I live by a very simple statement. I've written it down in every journal. It's in the back of every Bible I own. You'll never make an impact until you're committed to the collision. Amen. I refuse to get up tomorrow and not live fully. I refuse to get up tomorrow and not ask God to direct my steps. I refuse to get up tomorrow and roll over and hit the alarm clock on life and keep on snoozing. There's too much I got to do. There's too many people I got to win. There's much I got. to to do for the kingdom. I got to influence people. I am convinced that what we do in this life matters and that time is our most precious commodity. You know it's kind of frustrating when you think about it. You can all stand if you want. It's kind of frustrating when you all think about it. If this life matters so much It seems unfair that we don't get a warm-up life to prepare us for the real one. I know some of you think you're going to come back as a cockroach. But what good is that other than surviving a nuclear war and freaking people out when you come up out of the shower drain? I hate those suckers. Can I say sucker? Okay, I already said it. Sorry about that. Sorry, internet. Hi, mom. (laughs) Love you. There's no trial runs. Did you hear what I said? You get no trial run. Sit. You're going to be worm food unless the Lord comes. Some of y'all worms really going to like you. You have a lot to offer. I'm just kidding. Sorry. I'm blowing a good sermon. Life doesn't allot us do-overs. Once we have taken our last breath, our stories in history have been written. And although we have stories that continue on into eternity, it is imperative that we understand That these stories begin in the here and in the now. We each have one life, but your life, my life, has eternal significance. What we do in this one life has infinite implications. And beyond that, our stories are bigger than history. Our stories don't end when we do, they are only the beginning of much greater stories, the content of which we are probably completely unaware. Let me try to land this. You cannot, you must not allow fear to steal your future. Hear me. In this room tonight lies such incredible potential. It's staggering. Every day you walk upon this planet you must make sure you save nothing for the next life. Pastor and I were talking today in the car. He was talking about David in the cave when he is hiding from King Saul and men that were in debt, discontented and distressed. Came to him, the king to the cave of a king in the making. And David, along with God, fashioned the lives of these misfits, these mediocre misfits. He fashions their lives. And the Bible says they became the mighty men of David. In there were men like Shama, men like Eleazar, men that were mighty. They didn't start out that way, But they attached themselves to a giant killer. And God raised them up. One of them was a man by the name of Benaiah. And the Bible says that Benaiah, apparently, he didn't have a whole lot of brains in his head. Because the Bible says that he takes on two lion like men of Moab. I have no idea what a lion like man looks like. But he takes them on, tears them apart. This dude was a man's man. He takes an Egyptian who has a weaver's beam. That's just a fancy word for a crochet kit. He had a weaver's beam the size of Pastor Josh's head. That's pretty big. And he takes him down. He plucks, Sister Maddie, he plucks the spear out of the dude's hand and kills him with his own spear. He was a bad dude. But then he does something that absolutely makes no sense to me. The Bible says he comes across a lion that goes down into a pit on a snowy day. And instead of doing what I would have done, because I'd like to keep my other hand, he runs. He doesn't run. I would have ran. I'd have taken out of that. I'd have said... Adios, thank you. Hey, won't he do it? The lion went down into the pit. He saw me coming. I know he did. I'd have been out of there, Jack. But not Baniah. Benaiah goes down into the pit with the lion. That is plain stupidity. And he takes on Something. That was underneath the surface. Hear me for just a moment. He takes on something that was underneath the surface before it could get out from under there and do damage to somebody later in life. Listen to me, young people. You better take care of those issues now in your teens or they'll come out to get you in your 20s. Daddy, can I talk to you? Take care of that issue in your 30s or it'll come to get you in your 50s. But I recognize something if I don't take care of this now when it's in the domain of darkness, when nobody can see it, it may one day come out and destroy my child walking down this same path. So he took care of something that was underneath the surface because he decided I got one life to live. Why not? Clap your hands to the Lord all across this sanctuary for just a moment. It wasn't the right time. There were slippery steps. It was in an opportune season, but he goes down into a pit with a lion and destroys it because he recognized: if I don't deal with this wild, it's underneath the surface. It may one day come out of this pit and destroy me or somebody dear to me. Mama, keep praying in the midnight hour. Daddy, keep praying in the midnight hour. Come on, somebody! Your life has purpose. You've got a world to reach. You've You got a family to save. You got a city to change. You got a church to build. You have to. You have to, Daddy. You have to take care of those things that are beneath the surface if you want to make a difference in your life and get to the end of your life saying, as Paul did, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I laid it all out. I left nothing on the table. I gave myself away. Isaiah, what are you doing? It was in the year the king Uzziah died. Isaiah is is he's in the tabernacle, and the Bible says he. Sees the Lord high and lifted up; his train fills the temple. And then immediately after seeing God, he sees himself because he says, "Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips." After that, there's a voice that cries out, "Whom shall I send?" And Isaiah is over in the corner, underneath the altar, with hands trembling. "Send me, God. Use me, God." A revelation of God, which we all need, will always end up being a revelation, end up into a revelation of ourselves which will always eventually end up into a revelation of the mission that God is calling every single one of us a Young couple, God's hands on you. Mama, God's hands on you. Young person, God's hands on you. College student, God's hands on you. Not to make you popular, but to make you powerful. Let your hands all over the sanctuary right now. Hallelujah. Come on, daddy, pour it out. Come on, mama, pour it out. Come on, young person, pour it out. Pour it out. We got one life. We got one shot. Let's give it everything we've got.
0: Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without really knowing the exact path it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. So be sure to subscribe and watch us on Facebook Live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and also visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. So I'm